Chapter One, Part Three of Principia Ethica. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Frederick Carlson. Principia Ethica by G. E. Moore. Seventeen. There are then judgments which state that certain kinds of things have good effects, and such judgments, for the reasons just given, have the important characteristics: one, that they are unlikely to be true if they state that the kind of thing in question always has good effects and two that even if they only state that it generally has good effects many of them will only be true of certain periods in the world's history on the other hand there are judgments which state that certain kinds of things are themselves good and these differ from the last in that if true at all they are all of them universally true it is therefore extremely important to distinguish these two kinds of possible judgments both may be expressed in the same language in both cases we commonly say such and such a thing is good but in the one case good will mean good as means that is merely that the thing is a means to good will have good effects in the other case it will mean good as end we shall be judging that the thing itself has the property which in the first case we asserted only to belong to its effects it is plain that these are very different assertions to make about a thing it is plain that either or both of them may be made both truly and falsely about all manner of things and it is certain that unless we are clear as to which of the two we mean to assert we shall have a very poor chance of deciding rightly whether our assertion is true or false it is precisely this clearness as to the meaning of the question asked which has hitherto been almost entirely lacking in ethical speculation ethics has always been predominantly concerned with the investigation of a limited class of actions with regard to these we may ask both how far they are good in themselves and how far they have a general tendency to produce good results and the arguments brought forward in ethical discussion have always been of both classes both such as would prove the conduct in question to be good in itself and such as would prove it to be good as a means but that these are the only questions which any ethical discussion can have to settle and that to settle the one is not the same thing as to settle the other these two fundamental facts have in general escaped the notice of ethical philosophers ethical questions are commonly asked in an ambiguous form it is asked what is a man's duty under these circumstances or is it right to act this way or what ought we to aim at securing but all these questions are capable of further analysis a correct answer to any of them involves both judgments of what is good in itself and causal judgments this is implied even by those who maintain that we have a direct and immediate judgment of absolute rights and duties such a judgment can only mean that the course of action in question is the best thing to do that by acting so every good that can be secured will have been secured now we are not concerned with the question whether such a judgment will ever be true the question is what does it imply if it is true and the only possible answer is that whether true or false it implies both a proposition as to the degree of goodness of the action in question as compared with other things and a number of causal propositions for it cannot be denied that the action will have consequences and to deny that the consequences matter is to make a judgment of their intrinsic value 
as compared with the action itself in asserting that the action is the best thing to do we assert that it together with its consequences presents a greater sum of intrinsic value than any possible alternative and this condition may be realized by any of the three cases a if the action itself has greater intrinsic value than any alternative whereas both its consequences and those of the alternatives are absolutely devoid either of intrinsic merit or intrinsic demerit or b if though its consequences are intrinsically bad the balance of intrinsic value is greater than would be produced by any alternative or c if its consequences being intrinsically good the degree of value belonging to them and it conjointly is greater than that of any alternative series in short to assert that a certain line of conduct is at a given time absolutely right or obligatory is obviously to assert that more good or less evil will exist in the world if it be adopted than if anything else be done instead but this implies a judgment as to the value both of its own consequences and of those of any possible alternative and that an action will have such and such consequences involves a number of causal judgments similarly in answering the question what ought we to aim at securing causal judgments are again involved but in a somewhat different way we are liable to forget because it is so obvious that this question can never be answered correctly except by naming something which can be secured not everything can be secured and even if we judge that nothing which cannot be obtained would be of equal value with that which can the possibility of the latter as well as its value is essential to its being a proper end of action accordingly neither our judgments as to what actions we ought to perform nor even our judgments as to the ends which they ought to produce are pure judgments of intrinsic value with regard to the former an action which is absolutely obligatory may have no intrinsic value whatsoever that it is perfectly virtuous may mean merely that it causes the best possible effects and with regard to the latter these best possible results which justify our action can in any case have only so much of intrinsic value as the laws of nature allow us to secure and they in their turn may have no intrinsic value whatsoever but may merely be a means to the attainment in a still further future of something that has such value whenever therefore we ask what ought we to do or what ought we try to get we are asking questions which involve a correct answer to two others completely different in kind from one another we must know both what degree of intrinsic value different things have and how these different things may be obtained but the vast majority of questions which have actually been discussed in ethics all practical questions indeed involve this double knowledge and they have been discussed without any clear separation of the two distinct questions involved a great part of the vast disagreements prevalent in ethics is to be attributed to this failure in analysis by the use of conceptions which involve both that of intrinsic value and that of causal relation as if they involved intrinsic value only two different errors have been rendered almost universal either it is assumed that nothing has intrinsic value which is not possible or else it is assumed that what is necessary must have intrinsic value 
Hence, the primary and peculiar business of ethics, the determination of what things have intrinsic value and in what degrees, has received no adequate treatment at all. And on the other hand, a thorough discussion of means has been also largely neglected, owing to an obscure perception of the truth that it is perfectly irrelevant to the question of intrinsic values. But however this may be, and however strongly any particular reader may be convinced that some one of the mutually contradictory systems which hold the field has a given correct answer either to the question what has intrinsic value, or to the question what we ought to do, or to both, it must at least be admitted that the question what is best in itself, and what will bring about the best possible, are utterly distinct that both belong to the actual subject-matter of ethics, and that the more clearly distinct questions are distinguished, the better is our chance of answering both correctly. 18. There remains one point which must not be omitted in a complete description of the kind of questions which ethics has to answer. The main divisions of these questions is, as I have said, into two the question what things are good in themselves, and the question to what other things these are related as effects. The first of these, which is the primary ethical question, and is presupposed by the other, includes a correct comparison of the various things which have intrinsic value, if there are many such, in respect of the degree of value which they have, and such comparison involves a difficulty of principle which has greatly aided the confusion of intrinsic value with mere goodness as a means. It has been pointed out that one difference between a judgment which asserts that a thing is good in itself and a judgment which asserts that it is a means to good consists in the fact that the first, if true of one instance of the thing in question, is necessarily true of all whereas a thing which has good effects under some circumstances may have bad ones under others. Now it is certainly true that all judgments of intrinsic value are in this sense universal, but the principle which I have now to enunciate may easily make it appear as if they were not so, but resembled the judgment of means in being merely general. There is, as will presently be maintained, a vast number of different things, each of which has intrinsic value, there are also very many which are positively bad, and there is still a larger class of things which appear to be indifferent. But a thing belonging to any of these three classes may occur as part of a whole, which includes, among its other parts, other things belonging both to the same and to the other two classes, and these wholes, as such, may also have intrinsic value. The paradox to which it is necessary to call attention is that the value of such a whole bears no regular proportion to the sum of the values of its parts. It is certain that a good thing may exist in such a relation to another good thing that the value of the whole thus formed is immensely greater than the sum of the values of the two good things. It is certain that a whole formed of a good thing and an indifferent thing may have immensely greater value than the good thing itself possesses. It is certain that two bad things, or a bad thing and an indifferent thing, may form a whole much worse than the sum of badness of its parts. And it seems as if indifferent things may also be the sole constituents of a whole which has great value, either positive or negative. 
whether the addition of a bad thing to a good whole may increase the positive value of the whole or the addition of a bad thing to a bad may produce a whole having a positive value may seem more doubtful but it is at least possible and this possibility must be taken into account in our ethical investigations however we may decide particular questions the principle is clear the value of a whole must not be assumed to be the same as the sum of the values of its parts a single instance will suffice to illustrate the kind of relation in question it seems to be true that to be conscious of a beautiful object is of great intrinsic value whereas the same object if no one be conscious of it has certainly comparatively little value and it is commonly held to have none at all but the consciousness of a beautiful object is certainly a whole of some sort in which we can distinguish as parts the object on the one hand and the being conscious on the other now this latter factor occurs as part of a different whole whenever we are conscious of anything and it would seem that some of these wholes have at all events very little value and may even be indifferent or positively bad yet we cannot always attribute the slightness of their value to any positive demerit in the object which differentiates them from the consciousness of beauty the object itself may approach as near as possible to absolute neutrality since therefore mere consciousness does not always confer great value upon the whole of which it forms a part we cannot attribute the great superiority of the consciousness of a beautiful thing over the beautiful thing itself to the mere addition of the value of consciousness to that of the beautiful thing whatever the intrinsic value of consciousness may be it does not give to the whole of which it forms a part a value proportional to the sum of its value and that of its object if this be so we have here an instance of a whole possessing a different intrinsic value from the sum of that of its parts and whether it be so or not what is meant by such a difference is illustrated by this case nineteen there are then wholes which possess the property that their value is different from the sum of the values of their parts and the relation which subsists between such parts and the whole of which they form a part have not hitherto been distinctly recognized or received a separate name two points are especially worthy of notice one it is plain that the existence of any such part is a necessary condition for the existence of that good which is constituted by the whole and exactly the same language will also express the relation between a means and the good thing which is its effect but yet there is a most important difference between the two cases constituted by the fact that the part is whereas the means is not a part of the good thing for the existence of which its existence is a necessary condition the necessity by which if the good in question is to exist the means to it must exist is merely a natural or causal necessity if the laws of nature were different exactly the same good might exist although what is now a necessary condition of its existence did not exist the existence of the means has no intrinsic value and its utter annihilation would leave the value of that which it is now necessary to secure entirely unchanged but in the case of a part of such a whole as we are now considering it is otherwise in this case the good in question cannot conceivably exist unless the part exist also the necessity which connects the two is quite independent of natural law 
what is asserted to have intrinsic value is the existence of the whole and the existence of the whole includes the existence of its part suppose the part removed and what remains is not what was asserted to have intrinsic value but if we suppose a means removed what remains is just what was asserted to have intrinsic value and yet too the existence of the part may itself have no more intrinsic value than that of the means it is this fact which constitutes the paradox of the relation which we are discussing it has just been said that what has intrinsic value is the existence of the whole and that this includes the existence of the part and from this it would seem a natural inference that the existence of the part has intrinsic value but the inference would be as false as if we were to conclude that because the number of two stones was two each of the stones was also two the part of a valuable whole retains exactly the same value when it is as when it is not a part of that whole if it had value under other circumstances its value is not any greater when it is part of a far more valuable whole and if it had no value by itself it has none still however great be that of the whole of which it now forms a part we are not then justified in asserting that one and the same thing is under some circumstances intrinsically good and under others not so as we are justified in asserting of a means that it sometimes does and sometimes does not produce good results and yet we are justified in asserting that it is far more desirable that a certain thing should exist under some circumstances than under others namely when other things will exist in such relations to it as to form a more valuable whole it will not have more intrinsic value under those circumstances than under others it will not necessarily even be a means to the existence of things having more intrinsic value but it will like a means be a necessary condition for the existence of that which has greater intrinsic value although unlike a means it will itself form a part of the more valuable existent twenty i have said that the peculiar relation between part and whole which i have just been trying to define is one which has received no separate name it would however be useful that it should have one and there is a name which might be well appropriated to it if only it could be divorced from its present unfortunate usage philosophers especially those who profess to have derived great benefit from the writings of hegel have latterly made much use of the terms organic whole organic unity organic relation the reason why these terms might well be appropriated to the use suggested is that the peculiar relation of parts to whole justified is one of the properties which distinguishes the holds to which they are actually applied with the greatest frequency and the reason why it is desirable that they should be divorced from their present usage is that as at present used they have no distinct sense and on the contrary both imply and propagate errors of confusion to say that a thing is an organic whole is generally understood to imply that its parts are related to one another and to itself as means to end it is also understood to imply that they have a property described in some such phrase as they have no meaning or significance apart from the whole and finally such a whole is also treated as if it had the property to which i am proposing that the name should be confined 
but those who use the term give us in general no hint as to how they suppose these three properties to be related to one another it seems generally to be assumed that they are identical and always at least that they are necessarily connected with one another that they are not identical i have already tried to shew to suppose them so is to neglect the very distinctions pointed out in the last paragraph and the usage might well be discontinued merely because it encourages such neglect but a still more cogent reason for its discontinuance is that so far from being necessarily connected the second is a property which can attach to nothing being a self-contradictory conception whereas the first if we insist on its most important sense applies to many cases to which we have no reason to think that the third applies also and the third certainly applies to many to which the first does not apply twenty one these relations between the three properties just distinguished may be illustrated by references to a whole of the kind from which the name organic was derived a whole which is an organism in the scientific sense namely the human body one there exists between many parts of our body though not between all a relation which has been familiarized by the fable attributed to meninius agrippa concerning the belly and its members we can find it in parts such that the continued existence of one is a necessary condition for the continued existence of the other while the continued existence of this latter is also a necessary condition for the continued existence of the former this amounts to no more than saying that in the body we have instances of two things both enduring for some time which have a relation of mutual causal dependence on one another a relation of reciprocity frequently no more than this is meant by saying that the parts of the body form an organic unity or that they are mutually means and ends to one another and we certainly have here a striking characteristic of living things but it would be extremely rash to assert that this relation of mutual causal dependence was only exhibited by living things and hence was sufficient to define their peculiarity and it is obvious that of two things which have these relations of mutual dependence neither may have intrinsic value or one may have it and the other lack it they are not necessarily ends to one another in any sense except that in which end means effect and moreover it is plain that in this case the whole cannot be an end to any of its parts we are apt to talk of the whole in contrast to one of its parts when in fact we mean only the rest of the parts but strictly the whole must include all its part and no part can be a cause of the whole because it cannot be a cause of itself it is plain therefore that this relation of mutual causal dependence implies nothing with regard to the value of either of the objects which have it and that even if both of them happen also to have value this relation between them is one which cannot hold between part and whole but two it may also be the case that our body as a whole has a value greater than the sum of values of its parts and this may be what is meant when it is said that the parts are means to the whole it is obvious that if we ask the question why should the parts be such as they are a proper answer may be because the whole they form has so much value 
but it is equally obvious that the relation which we thus assert to exist between part and whole is quite different from that which we assert to exist between part and part when we say this part exists because that one could not exist without it in the latter case we assert the two parts to be causally connected but in the former part and whole cannot be causally connected and the relation which we assert to exist between them may exist even though the parts are not causally connected either all the parts of a picture do not have that relation of mutual causal dependence which certain parts of the body have and yet the existence of those which do not have it may be absolutely essential to the value of the whole the two relations are quite distinct in kind and we cannot infer the existence of the one from that of the other it can therefore serve no useful purpose to include them both under the same name and if we are to say that a whole is organic because its parts are in this sense means to the whole we must not say that it is organic because its parts are causally dependent on one another twenty two but finally three the sense which has been prominent in recent uses of the term organic whole is one whereby it asserts the parts of such a whole have a property which the parts of no whole can possibly have it is supposed that just as the whole would not be what it is but for the existence of the parts so the parts would not be what they are but for the existence of the whole and this is understood to mean not merely that any particular part could not exist unless the others existed too which is the case where relation one exists between the parts but actually that the part is no distinct object of thought that the whole of which it is a part is in turn a part of it that this supposition is self-contradictory a very little reflection should be sufficient to shew we may admit indeed that when a particular thing is part of a whole it does possess a predicate which it would not otherwise possess namely that it is a part of the whole but what cannot be admitted is that this predicate alters the nature or enters into the definition of the thing which has it when we think of the part itself we mean just that which we assert in this case to have the predicate that it is part of the whole and the mere assertion that it is a part of the whole involves that it should itself be distinct from that which we assert of it otherwise we contradict ourselves since we assert that not it but something else namely it together with that which we assert of it has the predicate which we assert of it in short it is obvious that no part contains analytically the whole to which it belongs or any other parts of that whole the relation of part to whole is not the same as that of whole to part and the very definition of the latter is that it does not contain analytically that which it is said to be its part and yet this very self-contradictory doctrine is the chief mark which shews the influence of hegel upon modern philosophy an influence which pervades almost the whole of orthodox philosophy this is what is generally implied by the cry against falsification by abstraction that a whole is always a part of its part if you want to know the truth about a part we are told you must consider not that part but something else namely the whole nothing is true of the part but only of the whole yet plainly it must be true of the part at least that it is part of the whole and it is obvious that when we say it is we do not mean 
merely that the whole is a part of itself this doctrine therefore that a part can have no meaning or significance apart from its whole must be utterly rejected it implies itself that the statement this is a part of that whole has a meaning and in order that this may have one both subject and predicate must have a distinct meaning and it is easy to see how this false doctrine has arisen by confusion with the relations one and two which may really be properties of wholes a the existence of a part may be connected by a natural or causal necessity with the existence of other parts of its whole and further what is a part of a whole and what has been ceased to be such a part although differing intrinsically from one another may be called by one and the same name thus to take a typical example if an arm be cut off from the human body we still call it an arm yet an arm when it is part of the body undoubtedly differs from a dead arm and hence we may easily be led to say the arm which is a part of the body would not be what it is if it were not such a part and to think that the contradiction thus expressed is in reality a characteristic of things but in fact the dead arm never was part of the body it is only partially identical with the living arm those parts of it which are identical with parts of the living arm are exactly the same whether they belong to the body or not and in them we have an undeniable instance of one and the same thing at one time forming a part and at another not forming a part of the presumed organic whole on the other hand those properties which are possessed by the living and not by the dead arm do not exist in a change form in the latter they simply do not exist there at all by a causal necessity their existence depends on their having that relation to the other parts of the body which we express by saying that they form part of it yet most certainly if they ever did not form part of the body they would be exactly what they are when they do that they differ intrinsically from the properties of the dead arm and that they form part of the body are propositions not analytically related to one another there is no contradiction in supposing them to retain such intrinsic differences and yet not to form part of the body but b when we are told that a living arm has no meaning or significance apart from the body to which it belongs a different fallacy is also suggested to have meaning or significance is commonly used in the sense of to have importance and this again means to have value either as a means or as an end now it is quite possible that even a living arm apart from its body would have no intrinsic value whatever although the whole of which it is a part has great intrinsic value owing to its presence thus we may easily come to say that as a part of the body it has greater value whereas by itself it would have none and thus that its whole meaning lies in its relation to the body but in fact the value in question obviously does not belong to it at all to have value merely as a part is equivalent to having no value at all but merely being a part of that which has it owing however to neglect of this distinction the assertion that a part has value as a part which it would not otherwise have easily leads to the assumption that it is also different as a part from what it would otherwise be 
for it is in fact true that two things which have a different value must also differ in other respects hence the assumption that one and the same thing because it is a part of a more valuable whole at one time than at another therefore has more intrinsic value at one time than at another has encouraged the self-contradictory belief that one and the same thing may be two different things and that only in one of its forms is it truly what it is for these reasons i shall where it seems convenient take the liberty to use the term organic with a special sense i shall use it to denote the fact that a whole has an intrinsic value different in amount from the sum of the values of its parts i shall use it to denote this and only this the term will not imply any causal relation whatever between the parts of the whole in question and it will not imply either that the parts are inconceivable except as parts of that whole or that when they form parts of such a whole they have a value different from that which they would have if they did not understood in this special and perfectly definite sense the relation of an organic whole to its parts is one of the most important which ethics has to recognize a chief part of that science should be occupied in comparing the relative values of various goods and the grossest errors will be committed in such comparison if it be assumed that wherever two things form a whole the value of that whole is merely the sum of the values of those two things with this question of organic wholes then we complete the enumeration of the kind of problems with which it is the business of ethics to deal twenty three in this chapter i have endeavoured to enforce the following conclusions one the peculiarity of ethics is not that it investigates assertions about human conduct but that it investigates assertions about the property of things which is denoted by the term good and the converse property denoted by the term bad it must in order to establish its conclusions investigate the truth of all such assertions except those which assert the relation of this property only to a single existent two this property by reference to which the subject matter of ethics must be defined is itself simple and indefinable and three all assertions about its relation to other things are of two and only two kinds they either assert in what degree things themselves possess this property or else they assert causal relations between other things and those which possess it. Finally, for, in considering the different degrees in which things themselves possess this property, we have to take account of the fact that a whole may possess it in a degree different from that which is obtained by summing the degrees in which its parts possess it. End of chapter 1